We're definitely talking about this. No, you freaking are not. <laughs> <laughs> that won't happen. Have you scrubbed out your French for the... Oh yeah, it's very nice. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. All you need to know is uh, bon chance. (laughs) Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. We are joined today by the full team, no guests, full internal champagne-fuelled rant (laughs) about the issues of the day. The day, of course, being my birthday. Happy birthday. Small applause. Hari hari (laughs) tau. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we're back from a very uh, long hiatus, as we've kind of mostly been largely hibernating through the miserable winter here, but that's given us plenty to talk about, and we have a little bit on our list today. We promise not to be sad kids. We are not going to be sad kids. Spring is sprunging outside, which that's is a positive right. sign, so we're all feeling good. Less negative, that more positive. That sounds like a command. Ah, <laughs> 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 feeling good. kids, look, look into my eyes. Mm. So, a lot has happened since our co-house episode, which got a great mm. response of lots of listeners. That was a really fantastic project to see. So, we're sort of in the room today having a chat about some of the stuff that's come up. And first of all, because you've done the most homework on it, Matt, and there's lots of meat in it, the NZIA Awards has come across our bows. Yeah, the shortlist. So, I suspect by the time this goes to air, it might be old news, but um, the shortlist of the of the National Awards is out, which is kind of obviously a, a cherry-picking of all of the uh, local awards um, get elevated up to the National Award status, and then um, the jury, I believe, is uh, doing their um, tour at the moment. I know they're sitting there later this week. So I um, thought it might be a good idea to sort of dig through some of those and pick out some of um, the things that caught our eye. And um, former guest of the show, Dave Strawn, is convening yes. the, the jury. Yes. Um, and, yeah, and there's, I guess there's a few themes that sort of came out of it as well. There's, a, there's quite a lot of enduring architecture um, coming out of it. So I wonder what architect Hitchcock's artisan thinks about the Erskine building being awarded a, an enduring award um, when they're obviously still practising and, and um, doesn't even didn't feel that long ago. Since what are the criteria built. for enduring? 25, 25 years. years. Yep. Yeah. So we'd all hope that we're still kicking around 25 years after a good building. Mm. And Erskine is a university hostel, right? I've seen it from outside, but I've never been inside. Is it residential on campus in Canterbury University? No, it's a, it looks residential, and I thought it was as well, but it's um, the engineering school. Oh, mm. Okay. Yeah, it's got a fantastic internal void. It has a beautiful domestic scale to it, it does. from the outside. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it's, um, that, and it still feels fresh. I mean, I think that's, that's the thing. Mm. You know, I, I sort of looked at it and went, oh, really? 25 years already? Yeah. Um, it, it's, I know. I remember, it's a I remember its building. publication. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. It's really terrific. Yeah. And I say that without having visited, but I would love to. Yeah. No, it's, um, there's, there's projects like that. There's the uh, substation that you... Um, oh, um, also a gem. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so this, listeners, is the Southern Aurora Substation, 1972 Dunedin by Allingham, Harrison and Partners. I was so pleased to see this there, partly because I've loved this building for so long and I've never either bothered to look it up or found out about its origins. And it is gorgeous, these beautiful curved, this beautiful curved brick facade on the street. And with this precast concrete, like brutalist volume above it, and then these gorgeous curved chimneys on the top that are um, 
you know, protecting these transformers or whatever. Yeah. I don't quite understand electrical the things. function Stuff. of electrical things, but <laughs> I just wanted to like buy it and convert it to my like Dunedin apartment because <laughs> I think it would be incredible. And I think that the, the streetscape um, gives you no clue as to what's on the roof. And this is very much a building that's all about that fifth elevation. Mm. It is just magic. Mm. Um, and so I'm completely torn on that award because I love both of those buildings, which are so different in scale um, and age, but both just fabulous. There's not fabulous. necessarily a limit on how many enduring awards they uh, can give, or is there? there? I, I don't, don't know. know. I, don't know. I, I felt I, like it was maybe one, but I don't know. Because the Dorset Street flats are up for it. It's kind of like... Are they? Yeah. Yeah. The oh, conversion of them. The conversion, but oh, that's no, not wait, enduring. Are they enduring or in a new project? Ooh, I, I think that's alteration. I think it's alteration to right. Yeah. Um, but what was lovely about um, the Southern Aurora substation is just to see so much architectural attention being lavished on an infrastructural building. Yes. So it sits so beautifully in its setting, discreetly actually. It's yeah. not making a big statement, but it's just very thoughtful. And I was thinking of other substations that I know. <laughs> that I walk past often. Do recite your repertoire. <laughs> well, no, there's one that I walk past often in Lower Hobson Street in Auckland, and it used to be beautiful, and it was massively upscaled, um, and it's just been subsumed in this ghastly skin of thoughtless aluminium cladding, and um, it doesn't look like any architectural attention was lavished on it at all. But before that, it was this beautiful precast concrete. So go from um, Hobson down to Fanshawe. Yeah, yeah. And it was fast charging. Yeah, and yeah. it was exquisite <clears throat> before. Um, and I think there must have been a period in the 70s because this one in Hobson Street looked like it dated from the same time where architects were given the responsibility of these substations, mm -hmm. but now it feels very much like a lesser job than that somehow. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, maybe it's... I didn't... I grew up in the 70s. I don't think of it as golden era, but... Um, it's nice to know there are little gems that sit within that. Ministry area. of Works. Ministry yep. of Works mm. architecture. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. A kind of a cartel because all of that work went to the Ministry of Works and there's a whole valid debate about the benefit of opening it up to other practices, but it was a time of <clears throat> a time of really amazing design outcomes and stuff that was often quite infrastructural or mm. you know, the substation nomination, don't let anyone tell you you need it to be a seven million dollar house to do good design. Yeah. Yeah. Or it needs to be a commercial building or a retail That's fit right. out. Like I, I wonder if a project like that could be invested in the same way today. Mm. Good question. Mm. And actually, at a time when arguably infrastructure needs design because the uh, tolerances between architecture and the city are so much less. I mean, it, these mm. things need to be an integrated part of our environments. Mm. It reminds me of the <clears throat> telephone exchange buildings around the world. There's an incredible one in Adelaide. It's like 20 stories high, it doesn't have a single window. Like the whole thing is just full of equipment. It's got like one door at the street. It's just incredibly <laughs> austere and right in like the downtown. Sort of 20 floors. I can't remember the name of it though. And they'd be full of like mm. telephone racks or they're probably full mm. of data racks now. Um, yeah, I think also like they, they, it's a really interesting question. What's the architectural brief that results in a thing like that? Mm. Because sometimes it's about concealment, but you actually want them to disappear you want them to vanish in the streetscape. This doesn't do that. This nominated one really kind mm. of celebrates it. But it's also not a building that's about public interface. Mm. And You're not supposed to go into it. And proportionally, it's in tune with its neighbours too. So mm. it plays a kind of double game of discretion and presence at the same time. Yeah. 
And it's quite respectful of its um, of its neighbours and, and the street. Yeah, like it's it, quite lovely contextually, yeah. right? Yeah. It's confident and not hiding, but also it's um, in dialogue. Yes. In dialogue, <laughs> as they say. Um, and the other one is Hinitahi. Uh, yeah. Um, Have you been? Yes, a few times. Um, I have mixed feelings about that, actually, because, yeah. well, I think even Miles said, right, that he bought the house for to have a garden. And he, I can't remember his exact words. I should have looked them up before this, but he kind of described the house as a bit lumpen or something like yeah. that. Um, but it's kind of magical because it carries his legacy with it and because he rebuilt it so quickly after the first Christchurch earthquake um, and because it was a series of interior stories inside each that was kind of intriguing from his library with the, what do you call that thing that runs around the top of the ceiling with the names of architects? Oh, does it have a name? Um, anyway, it was a wallpaper effect with, yeah. you know, Corbusier and Borromini and everybody's yeah. names written around yep. the top through to, you know, other um, kind of darker, more enclosed spaces. I was always fascinated that a kind of incredible modernist like him chose to live in this... Mm. What amounted to a confection, really. Yeah, yeah. Because the garden also has that flavour. But um, but I think it made him, the the mystery of that connection made him kind of more intriguing. And the garden, I don't know, there's something kind of magical about that place. But architecturally, I'm not sure if it's as significant. So many sense. of his watercolours and stuff when he was travelling were always classical buildings true, true. and older buildings. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's like, was that... Confection's an interesting word, but was that the underlying motive power of the modernist kind of ethic that came out of it? You know, there's clearly like a really deep fascination and love with it. Yeah, and I feel like his kind of modernism was not necessarily a break with classicism because if you look at spaces like the chapel, which is in that university building, like I don't remember the name of it in Christchurch, the famous one with the... College House? College House, yeah. thank you. That's very classical in a sense. A rectangle its, with the funny pointed mansard. Yeah, it's composition. Yeah. It's very classical, but it's also completely modernist at the same time. Um, and feels sort of crafted and minimalist and pure and ornate. Um, it's kind of a... It's a delicacy that I don't think is so present in Ohenatahi, which is a more straightforward old home that's made habitable for contemporary use yeah. in a way. So, sweepstake, by the time this comes out, the winners may be known. Who would you, who do you think? Which which do you think? The Erskine building, I would have thought. It is, it's quite timeless. It'll be, you know, give another 25 years, it'll still feel fresh. Solid. Mm. <clears throat> it's too hard to choose. I mean, mm. I love the Southern Aurora substation as a curiosity and as attention to small things, but the Erskine building is a, a monster of a kind of architectural contribution, right? Mm. Exactly. I mean, how do you how do you compare the two? Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe we should get the jury on. <laughs> <That'd be good. laughs> Why did you choose this? <laughs> what about before? You yeah. can't be serious. Yeah. <laughs> and, Matt, what else is standing out in um, the list? Because this, this is the Nationals, as you say. This is the best awarded in all of the locals, the, the cream of the national um, crop. Yeah, the, the from the single house perspective, like the one that stood out to me was the studio house, which is um, a little uh, pairing of structures connected with domed um, or vaulted um, roofs oh, wrapped in, in um, 
in Corrugate Line, which mm. is, I don't know the story of the house, but it just stood out as being something which is in, internally the spaces are incredibly rich and um, and just lovely. The the end mm. um, glazed ends to those vaults is just you know for for something which is very small, um, it does a lot. And I thought that was a standout. What do you call these roofs? I would call Vaulted? that a vault. Yep. Because it, it sort of fascinated me this kind of the sense of architectural trend, right? Because architects claim to sit outside trends, but um, this type of curved roof was huge in the 90s. The Hickey Street House by Michelin mm. Stout comes to mind, but mm -hmm. lots of other lesser <coughs> examples. And I still think it's a beautiful gesture in that house in particular. Um, but it's not happened for a long time. Yeah. Um, and now it's back in this arguably contem contemporary form it's tweaked slightly, but also it reflects this kind of mania for curves and interiors where everything that you see on Instagram now is kind yeah. of curved within an inch of its life. Yeah. You see a straight line in an interior or a door frame that's rectilinear. It's sort of a miracle. But don't you think also that there's a certain element of like the caravan in yes. this composition yeah, yeah. as well? And, nice. and I, I could be wrong on this. I think feel like maybe the modules are kind of fit on the back of a truck size. I'm going to be reading the story yeah. and I think that's the case. So, right. so to me it also has, um, I totally know what you're saying, but it also has that aspect too, mm. like the the caravan typology, the, the smallhouse, yeah, that totally. Mm. Yeah, and I should clarify, I guess I'm not criticising it for appearing to glom onto a trend. I think it's actually adapted that. Yeah. 90s postmodern roof form into something that feels contemporary and, and fresh. Yeah, and, that, right. and it should be praised for that. Also, the way it brings light into that space yes. is really interesting um, and makes a kind of very constrained footprint seem generous. Yeah. It's lovely too. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, um, it's a cracker. And the single house category... It would you could argue it's one of the most hotly contested categories yes. of all New Zealand oh, awards, right? Totally, yeah. But Not as esteemed <clears throat> as the best renovation at the Master Builder Awards, <laughs> Tash, which your home was recently recognised for, <laughs> along with three other awards on the same night. I understand. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, louder. <laughs> <laughs> so con congratulations <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there. So, and then. Yeah, so a few other ones. Um, the deep cover, which is um, Edward's White, which are, um, they, they're consistently, the stuff that I see from them is just so good. This is the Waikato practice. Yes, right? yeah. yeah. So this is a, a, a cricket mm. pavilion, which um, oh, yes. extends. Um, uh, there's another cricket pavilion that um, Pack won mm. yes. an award yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, I remember Le that. Less flags on this one. Um, but fewer. Fewer, sorry, fewer <laughs> Yes. Can we just pause for a moment and just ask who the fuck is commissioning cricket? I was, I was, and how do you get one? Because, I, like, I, it's, you know, it seems like a really good gig, yeah. right? I, it's, it's lovely. I mean, yeah. it's, um, it, the, the composition of it is just is really good. And the photos are yeah. incredibly It's a bit of a dream well. project, eh? I'm yeah. happy cricket to do a tennis pavilion if anyone wants one. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. In France. <laughs> hey. 
<laughs> I, um, I painted a tennis pavilion when I was doing my community service there as a young, go. naughty boy racer boy. But we, <laughs> boy racer. It's Can a we just subject, for another, subject for another podcast. We <laughs> digress. <laughs> we digress. Driving? What were you so, driving? Can we just... No, no, hold up. What were you what driving? You, what were you I was driving my mother's uh, Mr. <laughs> Etude. <laughs> Which was a little imported car driving too fast. But it's a nuts. I, I don't want some, to divide. I don't know a master A2, but did you just undermine your own case to be a former boy racer or not? We, we're getting seriously off topic. The master A2 does not sound super butch. Can yeah. we just say that? No, no. But back in the spoiler? day, back in, yes, it did have a spoiler. It wasn't mm. about butchness. It was about high revving, uh, low capacity <laughs> engines. You don't need to get defensive with us. <laughs> Look, it's my birthday. <laughs> Be nice. It sounds like it's kind of the cricket pavilion of the... Yes, of the anyway. Yeah. So we'll come back to the topic. Yeah. Um, yeah, a real dream job. Who does commission a cricket pavilion? And if you would like a cricket pavilion, please get in touch. Yeah. Well, first you've got to have enough land to have a cricket field, and then you've got to have enough cash to commission it. And enough patience to play yeah. cricket on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. Who um, knows? Who knows? It, it is a gem from the photos. I mean, cricket it is. is a very long game, so pavilions are quite important in that sense. Yes. It retreats from the sun and... To refresh to for refresh. the scorer, another role I and, carried out at high school, to argument. sit in the shade and put those little dots marking what happened on each ball. I mean, You'd I be very good at that. Mm. Yeah, I don't want to no, digress too much here, but um, I was a very, um, I was in my high school first 11 cricket, but also I was quite good at scoring. And once I was scoring for, I think it was, I don't know if I was the official scorer at McLean Park, but anyway, it was, it was a game between some provincial team and another one, but TV1 was there covering it. And I had to correct the TVNZ scorer because he was one run out, which ended wow. up being quite decisive. A cricket career, I imagine. Sixteen-year-old me had to set the record straight. I can imagine Jeremy <laughs> fairly, fairly tidy, uh, medium pace right arm over. Uh, right arm off spinner. Off spinner. Uh, and I also opened the batting, so I was quite uh, competent and you know right. You sound like the sort of guy who would have beaten me up. As <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you that was not the case. <laughs> Oh, nobody. Was, let's just rewind and say nobody was threatened by me. <laughs> such, a, such a short leap from the Edwards White Pavilion to institutionalised bullying. <laughs> Let us get back on track. You've got on your list Te Pai, now not the Te Pai Convention Centre in Christchurch, but the Crossan, um, yep. um, you know, veers from masterpiece to monstrosity, depending on who you talk to. I love it. It's really good. It's love gorgeous. It. It's so delightful, and it's one. It's, it's almost like building on a massive hair. I mean, it looks like what it's supposed to do. It right? It looks like an illustration out of a comic book. Yeah. So like let's a describe s- it for our listeners. This is the lifeguards tower at Pihar mm. that yeah. Cross and Architects designed, right? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. how would you describe it? It's a series in, of tubes, in a, in a like, of like what Ted Cruz called the internet. Mm. It's a series of it's a series of tubes. Um, it's <laughs> we should have got more champagne. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's marvelous, and I lo- what I I also love its journey from um, not exactly overwhelming acceptance by the community initially mm. to like the power of architecture to convince yes. and and to like to stand its ground and bring people with it. And take a risk on what it means to belong and to fit in and to respond to context. Mm. So it's outside what you expect. So I wasn't aware of this narrative. So was it hated and then? Yes. I don't know about universally, but there was a lot of there was a lot of there resistance. resistance yep. It's a monstrosity. It's ugly. It's this. It's that. Um, 
but I think it's, and I'm sure there will still be people who don't like it, but I've read a lot of accounts of it having been won over and kind of warmed to by the community. Mm. And I just think, you know, if, if, with your sort of architect hat on, you talk about context and dialogue and all of that. It's an amazing response to that environment. Yeah. Um, and a really brave piece of architecture. Yeah. Like Ken and Crossan are just kind of at the height of their powers, I think, at the moment, doing killer mm. killer work mm. Mm. and i love the way that it almost it's like it's got sunglasses on kind of just yeah. braving the winds there yeah. <laughs> the way it the way it could be leaning into the weather the way yeah. that it's elevated yeah all of those yeah. all of those suggestions and implications you see yeah. in it i think it's i think it's killer yeah sort of like what categories one of, are in? one of craig Muller's ai posts on it <laughs> yes, almost got a personality to it yeah exactly mm. I mean, I think one of the, the sort of overall comments I would make about the, the awards is that there's um, a real sense of uh, all of the projects that are there are doing something beyond just, you know, being functional and um, looking beautiful. They're saying something about mm. architecture and whether that be, you know, uh, Mike Hartley's uh, yeah. response, the the luxury of, of enough. I I yeah, mean, great I think name that is too, right? totally, and I think that is a fantastic response to the idea of um, how to create a, a family home on a budget. Where do you put the the emphasis on the design when you when things are really constrained? And it, look, it's a it's a really cracking project and it is great to see it being recognised and there's a number of projects like that as well in there and I, I think that's some uh, deft choice uh, from the judges on that front. I think Mike's home, because it is his home, mm. and to, to come back to your first point, the, these are all born, I suspect, through COVID. Yeah, So yes. it's, it's kind of, it will be quite, you know, Mike mm. feels that response because mm. he lives there and he's um and the response is incredibly personal for him this so mike hartley of lloyd hartley right that's mm. right um so yeah the and I th it's yeah i know mike um, quite well but the um the you hear him talk about it and it's yeah you know, he's clearly it's everything he's had is in it you know and it's um there'll be a lot of feeling put into a lot of the projects that we've um, seen come to light in this round of awards. Mm. The other, another um, theme I've kind of immediately drawn to was the, if you rewind even a year, there are a number of quite large scale multi-unit developments, might have been two years, where KO won about two or three of them. Mm. Um, and there's a real sort of um, uh, lack of those in, in this round. So mm. that's kind of, that might be, um, sign yeah. of the times. Sign of the times. Mm. Do you, um, when you say sign of the times, do you mean a sign of the building cost times or that there are units being built that are not eligible or adequate for architecture awards? I was going to say the former and that, that projects have stopped and or not been able to proceed over the last few years because of building costs. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, if we see any next year, it'll be interesting because there, there's very few being um, mm. consented mm. now. Yeah, I mean, all of the projects that are in the awards now have their genesis two, three, four years ago. They're a sign of the economic climate back then, not now. Yes, exactly. So where we are right now, it'll be interesting to look at, for example, the multi-unit res category yeah. in the coming yep. three years, which Pleasure. could be quite tough. Uh, in that category, the block party by Spacecraft stood out to me because oh, it yeah. was, um, it just, uh, and it's hard to 
digs through and fully understandable and that information's available, but the, that just feels like a clever response to a 600 square meter site. So this is the multi-housing development with four houses and a kind of social unit in yeah. one, yes. isn't it? Yeah. It's a little co-housing yeah. job, I exactly. believe. Um, the and it's really just, smart. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I haven't watched that. Um, um, the designing dreams with um, what's his name, Mr. Matthew Ridge. Mr. Matthew Ridge on it um, recently, and um, it's quite interesting the similarities between that and they um, was uh, patchwork architects. Yep, um, yes. showing around. So there's sort of some similarities there, which was quite they work nice. together. Do they? Mm. Right. Uh, no, sorry, they have. I've worked past tense, and that. Um, one of the architects who worked on Dogbox with Patchwork Architects is Tim, is now one of the, mm. um, Tim so and Caroline, no, two of them actually, um, who worked on Dogbox oh, right. and now part of Spacecraft. And so they gotcha. all came to architecture school together. Sally Ogle is in the jury for the Nationals yes. as well. Ah, oh, right. Oh, gotcha. yep. Right, okay. From Patchwork, yep. Um, RTA's primary school um, was very good, really quite interesting model of uh, of two story semi urban start to go vertical um, uh, schools. The education category overall felt quite strong. It was good mm. to see that many schools and the variety of schools um, celebrated that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I mean, you know. Hat tip to the MOE for actually yeah. mm. um, pushing these um, uh, projects through. Because, yes. I mean, I, I genuinely think that um, a child who goes to one of these schools will have a very different, perhaps richer school and, you know, experience than perhaps if you had, are going to a mm. one with prefabs. That's yeah. the goal. Yeah. 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 And Matt, is the Hundertwasser centre in? Yes. What do we think? Dare we commit to take? It, it should get an enduring award immediately, given how long ago it was designed. Um, I've gone and had a walk around. There? I've had a walk around. I haven't gone inside. Yeah, it's it's inside. absolutely mad. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. and it's, you know, the ground surfaces. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but I haven't been inside. I've been through the, um, just through the foyer, but I haven't actually gone into the gallery yeah. bit yet. I think you can feel the discomfort of us talking about it. Yeah, and I don't even want to use value terms because it's more just like it is such a different building. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, I think I'm so glad it's there for Whangarei. Yeah. Um, I really like the gesture of the ramp. Up to the roof. To the roof. And, yeah, yeah, I think it's a great brilliant. move. And the planting on the roof is great. I um, think I, just at the time, I thought it's kind of interesting, like how um, there's this museum being built as a kind of commemoration to an immigrant architect who resided in New Zealand for a long time and had some very interesting ideas about a number of things. But I don't know if it would have been possible to get in a museum in Whangarei dedicated totally to Māori art rather than mm. this mm. guy. Um, designed by a contemporary Māori architect, architect off the ground. I just find that I'm, this is yep. not a diss to the building, but yep. I find it just an interesting thing to contemplate as we look around our cultural landscape and see mm. nothing that's dedicated to that. And one of the disappointments, in a sense, of the Huntavasa Centre is that it's great that there is this wide Māori art gallery dedicated to contemporary Māori art, the only space in the country solely dedicated to contemporary Māori art. And then you go there and it's like a pretty small space on the ground floor. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. 
this is a victory. Yeah. Um, and it is, sadly, but that's bad. But also, um, this is just, and again, this is totally personal. Fucking mosaic drives me insane. <laughs> um, <laughs> not the building for you. No, and really. the wobbly floor and all that. I was just like, I did um, wonder, give me strength. I did wonder with some of those, like, how you know, how does it, how is it an, is it an accessible building and, and those sorts of things, which must have been traversed, but you walk around some of them and. Well, from a design um, perspective, there were some quite frustrating parts I found, like there were a lot of constriction points in that building and I was there in summer on a really busy rainy day where everybody turned up it was great to see it so busy but there were a lot of parts where you just could not get through it was not navigable because there were too many people yeah right and these corridors or these kind of vital entry points to various galleries are totally narrow and weird do you think that the sort of the desire to create an homage to Hundavasa perhaps overcame some of those other design things that might get worked through in a different way with a different... Yeah, I don't know. And then you think, oh, would that have been watering down, that vision, and would the building have been worse as a result? I don't know. And parts of his... A lot of it's dedicated to him, right, and the work he's done. A lot Mm. of that is quite interesting. But some of his buildings that he proposed were absolute duds, IMO. Um, (laughs) And also it just... I picked up the vibe which might be completely untrue that he would have been um, a totally cantankerous pain in the ass to work with and his but I guess a lot of visionaries are like that right whether or not you like their work they're kind of single-minded and they're dedicated to this vision and they continue to perpetuate it so I I mean I guess it made me think I had a lot of feelings about it Um, and like I say I'm glad it's there but I don't want to go back so talking about feelings talking about visionaries um, talking about you know singular talents segues us nicely into a story that I was I was admonished for not knowing about earlier in July, which is the news about David Adjay, mm. which in terms of talking about it is to me less about the specifics of it. I, I believe those allegations they're very shocking. I'm interested in them from the point of view of the story of the adulation of genius, which I think is one of the factors there um even even parallels with things like ocean gate the titan submarine manufacturer which i would like to weave in here from an <laughs> architectural perspective Segway, as Segway. well but a, that was it's your birthday but, I mean. it's a <laughs> but that was shocking news look there's lots online it broke in the early in early july um he'd been accused of sexual assault by three employees very detailed and credible um allegations made i believe a lot of them were offshore i think they mm. were on trips um these were people he worked with as well so so they I were think, employees at the time i believe well i think he knew some of them even before they were employees and i think a lot of it centered around um setting up an office in ghana that's right but yep. it, as you say i mean it's sort of well the details are what they are but can you be a world famous star architect with that much adulation and not sort of succumb to the the kind of the ego issue, you know, that's really your question, isn't I it? I think it kind of is. Yeah. It's the sort of giantness of those positions mm. and the adulation. You know, you know, awards. He's, he's a sir. He's a sir. He's a sir. Sir, sir David he Came out to in situ. Yeah. We asked to meet with him. 
to have an interview with him. But yeah, I think it's that sort of giantness in what it might do. Yeah. And the... Um, he's yeah. basically stepped back from every major project he's involved in now. Right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which must be like, um, must be a huge blow to the, to I the think... practice financially, like yeah. so many jobs cancelled, all of those sorts of things. Mm. And it led me down a rabbit hole of reading... Um, because then you go to Glassdoor and you read all the Glassdoor reviews of um, AJ Associates and all of the others and you go back a few years and cultures within practices as a whole kind of, there's almost way more than we could actually kind of cover here. What was kind of interesting as well as the terrible allegations of sexual assault to me was that the flood of other commentary where it was just people going, it's the worst place yes. to work. Yeah. yeah. It is terrible. And... That was kind of really interesting to me, but it made me think a lot about the, the politics of representation, right? And uh, this is not sympathy for David RJ. I like his work. I think it's, you know, there's, there's no problem there. But um, that architecture needed a high-profile black architect to mask mm -hmm. the racism that's existed in the pre profession forever. And this is not to say his talent didn't merit the recognition he got, but I also just thought a lot about his terrible actions, but also the pressure that was on him to um, continue to achieve at a really high level, to continue to carve out space for himself, to fight accusations of tokenism. Again, I'm not empathising with him, but mm. it just was so complicated in that now architecture's pretty much lost its highest profile architect of colour. Mm. Um, and you look around and you're like, where are... Exactly. All the other architects of colour and um, the profession itself ends up in this double bind where it's like, well, his behaviour is inexcusable, so he's kind of got to exit mm. or not be um, tolerated. The behaviour should not be tolerated. But then it's not like there's a hundred other excellent black architects coming up behind him because the system's still not changed. And there's this weird double tier thing going on of where... Um, you know, on panels and in magazines and stuff like that, a lot of people are making big efforts to change the way they cover things and to give mm -hmm. greater recognition to architects of colour, but there aren't many architects of colour getting big projects for obviously structural reasons, mm -hmm. and it just kind of highlights that weakness so much greater, and also how much everyone was like, no, no, look at David RJ, everything's fine. Do you think <laughs> it's exacerbated by the... By the single name phenomenon because we have talked yep. about this too before and one of the things in my reading of the so you get the people who go it's a terrible place to work is it might have been Dezine but it was a long might have been Ollie Wainwright I can't remember kind of said actually underlying all of this all of these great achievements they weren't drawn by David they weren't documented by David they weren't years and years of their lives so the singular focus on a name and that's not unique to AJ Associates no. that's all around the world um, great Comfort in not naming your practice after, after your you. name. Yes, yeah, <laughs> because there is. it is a collaborative effort. And I, hmm. to your point, Jeremy, I wonder also if that very sudden rise and um, perhaps growth of a practice meant that there wasn't the time to put systems in place to hmm. sort of start to look at how you grow things. It, it just because you're right, there are the sexual allegations, but then all of the other allegations about, like, it was a shambles, you know, it was so disorganised, it wasn't paid, mm, you mm. know, all the rest of it. Um, and, and that sort of speaks of just 
perhaps a, an office where things didn't have the right systems in place, they weren't able to do all of those things, um, aside from David's indiscretions um, along with it. That's terrible, right? Just not only for the women, but those employees who feel like they've been in a terrible environment. But you think of the hope David RJ gave to black architects totally. everywhere. And to see him um, brought down by this, again, it's his own actions and mm. um, him being brought down is entirely justifiable. But it, there's a kind of tragedy, oh. a systemic tragedy at the heart of all this. That it hits twice as hard, hard, right? I you think know. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, Richard Meyer and that kind of thing, you're like, oh, you know, again, terrible, but... Yeah, yeah. Who cares? It's just, he did some good work, but it doesn't matter. And also, he was at the end of his career, was RJ was arguably kind of... Yeah. ...in the middle of his And There's a lot of people that work for him that possibly don't have jobs now and that kind of stuff as well, and the collateral damage that never get... Well, that's the thing. It's mm. never just the one person who gets affected. It's the sort of yeah. the trickle down effect, right? So, um, I just no good answers to that situation. No. So, is I pivot to weave in my ocean gate uh, aspect? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So you're going to have to provide context. <laughs> I have recently been ruminating on the Titan submarine tragedy from a design oh. and a design culture point of view, and it is somewhat adjacent here to the questions I was asking about, the over the valorization of the designer. Hmm. And so to me, Ocean Gate is, is the company where the visionary, the designer, the person who bragged about the rules he broke, sacked the person with the technical expertise, David Lockridge, who said you shouldn't be doing it this way and here's how you should test if it's safe, as a metaphor for the collaboration you're talking about that there is not one without the other and that design and best outcomes, whether you're designing an aeroplane or a cricket pavilion or a skyscraper or a trampoline, are, are this mix of the tension of vision but backed up by the, you know, the laws of physics and economics and compliance and practicality and that's the union of those two things that is true design, which kind of sits in my head. So I think we can all see cultures where one is over or under-emphasised but I think Ocean Gate was an interesting parable of what happens when you dismiss, literally dismiss, the technical expertise. Mm. And I actually tweeted the other day, I don't know if you've seen that mad Las Vegas sphere covered in LEDs, which is just amazing, right? But apparently it rained a lot in Las Vegas and it was glitching out. And it was sort of, to me, it was like when you, you know, when you keep your Stockton rush and you fire your David Lockridge. Mm. It's interesting because as you were saying that, I was thinking about architecture as being a difficult subject for people to relate to, which in a sense I was working at that edge in Home Magazine trying to kind of make architecture, domestic architecture, relatable mm -hmm. and the importance of architecture relatable to people who didn't um, hadn't paid much attention to it as a discipline. And it's much easier to do that when it's a person who's a yes. creator. Because a firm is an abstract construction yep. and, you know, um, feels slightly detached and corporate and therefore less relevant. And we all love stories of individual creators, whether they be artists or musicians and things like that. And I think there's always been this desire or tendency to lump the creative act of architecture and uh, attach it to individuals and yeah. um, 
talk about it that way because it's quite simpler quite and it's more accessible to, to talk about it as an individual yeah. who designed that building collaborations are hard to well 35 simplify. people did or, or 150 if you count all the other consultants yeah so no one this, wants that story is this a scale question though i mean those things you talk about the kind of creativity and if, when contained within an individual or a small you know an individual leading a small group that um that feels less tenuous, but at some point, um, the the practice needs to break into parts. You get to Foster's, right? You yep. get to Foster's size, and you want, if you want your project to have Lord Sir Norman work on it, because he can't work on every one of them, and those that he does, he must inherently limit the hours he can spend on them. Mm. It, we, I can't remember we've covered it already, but the, the gold medalist, this time Stephen Sawson, the first yep. collaboration to be recognised. And there's a question of whether... Is it the first gold medal partner? The um, exception of the group. The group, right. Um, it was post, posthumous, wasn't it? The group, group. would have been, what? yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess there's a, there's a question. Does it become more difficult? Yes, it becomes more difficult when it's... Um, when the scale increases, right, that those problems become exacerbated because um, you have a have some Miles Warren, you have a Morris Money, and mm, they are mm. two different people, and it's the the relationship and the connection between them um, is um, needs to be incredibly strong to make it happen. Mm. But whether it's Chipperfield, Hadid, Ajay, these yep. are the names. Who designed that building? Yeah, that person. Yeah, mm. yeah, and does that contribute <clears throat> to those? To those pressures uh, would it anyone want does. to dissolve that down and simply say there is no i there is we you, you name your firm something you know less personal about your name i don't know kind of. does it make someone less likely to abuse that power i don't know that either yeah don't know mm. like you know there are lots of anonymous people in workforces who are abusive yes yeah. like, still got yeah, some, sometimes they own architecture practices and have their name above the door so, yeah. with all of the I don't knows in this episode, and before we close up, and so that Tash can get to her important, exciting next upcoming meeting, which we will keep secret, but is exciting. Um, Jeremy, you have something in the works. Oh, yeah. Um, don't sound surprised. We, yeah. I, I, I we agreed we'd talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, September 28th is the release of Rewi Atahaere Kia Tere, um, the book by Jade Kaki and I. Um, well, to say bye, we edited it really um, because it's a series of conversations about um, the great New Zealand architect, Rewi Thompson. Um, and I say great unhesitatingly after spending a lot of time thinking and talking about him in his archive. So um, yeah, that's really exciting. It's, the release comes up at the end of September. We've also got um, an exhibition accompanying the book, which focuses on Rewi's speculative projects, um, mostly unrealised, um, at object space um, that will run for a month or so around the same time. Um, the books, it's funny after working on this for kind of four years and weekends and evenings and things like that. And between podcasts. Yeah, between podcasts and to see the object arrive was such a pleasant shock because it's, you know, 456 pages and Jade and I are both like, what wow. the hell? Yeah. <laughs> how, did we, how did we do this? But also it's... It's apart from using the word impassive twice uh, in, in consecutive paragraphs that I didn't oh, see. I on know the first, that one. I didn't see it on the first hundred reads, and I, then it appears in print. I'm I like, know God, that. Damn it! Hurt you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
it's it feels good. Rewi's archival drawings really hold it together because we were initially concerned that it's a book about a guy who didn't build a whole lot of work. We've got beautiful photographs of, you know, City to Sea Bridge and Puking of the School of Māori Studies at Unitech and um, some of the exterior of his own house and things like that. But it was like, we're talking a lot about things that weren't realised, but his drawings really bring that alive. So hopefully it'll feel to people like something they can dip in and out of easily and hear other people talking about Rewi and it doesn't, it avoids what we thought was going to be a trap of trying to be a definitive mm. biography and it's much more expansive and maybe slightly random and <laughs> loose in that sense. So yeah, we can, you can do a savage review in October on the podcast and I'll sit here and take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll adopt the Ellen Smithies and yeah. uh, do my review. Well, congratulations. Yeah, the yeah. thing you and Jade yeah, have yeah. made is coming into the world. That is fantastic. Yeah, so really look, really look forward to seeing it. And it's a beautiful looking book as well from the kind of the images you've been posting in our yeah hat to Tyrone or here yeah. and Eva Charlton at Extended Fano the, the design company we um, made that a kind of condition of doing the book with our publisher that we could um, work with Tyrone on it and I just think the way he and Eva kind of immersed themselves in the material and kind of intuitively after a while understood what Riwi was about has meant it's a really beautiful object to kind of see and hold on to too so that's uh, again we're talking about collaboration right yeah mm. we just happily handed it over to them and yeah then came awesome. like oh my gosh that looks so much better than i ever dreamed it could um, oh, so that's how it's I, been really satisfying too i can't wait to see and to, of course savagely review it it should be amazing you're gonna hate it that's so that's so great um congratulations well I think that's us. We are looking to get a international mass timber architect on the pod in the coming months. So really looking forward to teeing that interview up. In situ was announced as definitely happening next year, February. February. February, with speakers being announced by the time this comes out. So stay tuned for that. We will uh, cough, cough, be looking for some media uh, passes to get to that again next year and interview the speakers as much as we can and bring that to you. But that's all from us. Thank you. Ka kite. Ka kite.